Blog Talk Radio. different topics. So you were just listening to John Clegg. That's the gentleman who sang that anti-apartheid song. It came out in 1987. I was just a young boy at the time. So the messaging behind the song is we have not seen him. And it was referring to, of course, Nelson Mandela. Madiba, who unfortunately passed on a few years back. Madiba is a veteran statesman, and I think the name Nelson Mandela is, uh, is synonymous with freedom, with struggle. So I think almost everybody in the world, uh, 99% of black people, I think they have heard of Nelson Mandela. So let me welcome my co-host for this evening, the great Nasilele Imasiko. How are you doing, Nasi? Well, uh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Good evening, Mr. President. You'll always be 
Mr. President Tumi, and thank you so much for having me on the show, and good evening, listeners. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, at least I retired from Zen, so, uh-huh. but the name, the president's name, I think you two always remain, so after yeah. being part of the community for quite a, quite some time, I think I'll always be known as the President Noah. <laughs> Yeah, so the greatest president now. So uh, how have you been? How have you rested? And I know uh, being a community leader is quite involving. Yeah, you see, it's 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 a challenge. I think at least now I'm resting, taking my time at least just to unwind, sit back and relax and sort of enjoy the cold. Unfortunately, the cold is just too much. I think our brethren, friends in Texas, because usually you don't get snow in Texas. You may get some low temperature, but you don't get this type of weather. And it's unfortunate uh, what is happening, of course, the uh, blackout, especially in this. That's the last thing that you want to have. But other than that, I'm I'm enjoying myself. How, How have you been? How was your Valentine's? Otherwise, uh, I've been doing okay. My Valentine was fine. I've been busy working in the front lines. So we've been busy. We've had so much shortage of nurses. As you are aware, some people have died. Some people have retired. Though some people have come back to help out during the pandemic. And uh, we are just getting there. We are taking it one day at a time. And we are happy that the numbers are slowing down now with the pandemic. So we'll see what uh, 2021 has for us. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's uh, this year is shaping out to to be better than last year because I know 2020, uh, most people were looking forward. Let's get to 2021 and the COVID and everything else will be a thing of the past. But this is the 17th day of the second month in 2021. And uh-huh. though the cases have gone down, which is a good thing, the cases have gone down, so at least we are happy. Uh, the vaccine which is out there, at least it's making its rounds and uh, the miracles that we want because we don't want to hear people are dying, especially that there can be some mitigation in terms of vaccines. So it's important for you, especially in the healthcare, you want to make sure that you protect yourself so that at least uh, we don't want to hear anything otherwise. Absolutely right, because uh, actually our company have been in the forefront making sure that uh, the frontline staff are getting the, uh, vaccinated, and uh, they keep on giving us so many chances, and uh, they're not uh, mandating, but they're making sure that everybody is educated enough and to make uh, informed decisions whether to get vaccinated or not. So we just had our second um, um, vaccination clinic last Thursday. This, this was the second time they sent over people to vaccinate, so they'll be coming back again for those that did not um, uh, make the decisions. Because they do realize that these medications are new, so uh, basically we don't know. So we're just taking it one day at a time and just trusting God. So over to you. Yeah, yeah, we are hoping for, for the best. Yeah, so uh, this is a very first show uh, that we are having on Noah Uncensored. So we'll try to be as raw as much as possible and speak to the issues that affect our people and just to 
bring to light because there is so much that is happening around the world and when you look at the statistics we have less black voices out there so uh, having a radio show like this the premise is to add uh, a voice to the greater society and the agendas that most people are not able to bring them forward and we are starting this radio show to just zoom in on issues that affect us all as a people on this planet Earth. So for this very first episode, we wanted to start out on a very high note because we know this is Black History Month and most of our African brethren, especially people coming from Africa, uh, they may not really have a firm understanding about Black History Month. So this is why we wanted to reach out to a person who knows a lot about Af uh, Black History Month and just African studies. He's a Pan-African. He is somebody who I've gotten to know for the past few months. And he speaks truth. He has his own radio show. And it's airs on, it's an internet radio show like ours. Uh, it's called New Orleans Wake Up. So this is a brother. Uh, to call someone a brother is one of the highest uh, honor that you can give to uh, uh, an African uh, descendant, an African who has a lot to say, a person who has a strong voice, especially on a number of topics. So he just likes to go by Brother Warren. So uh, first at this point, let me walk, uh, make sure that we have a firm connection because uh, he's joining us all the way from New Orleans. So, Brother Warren, welcome to our program. Well, thank you so much. It's glad to be here. Oh, yeah, I see the connection is solid, so we are happy. See, we honor you very, very much to an extent that we wanted to kick out this show, having you as our first guest so that at least we want to start on a very, very high note. That just shows... Uh, where we regard you as uh, just somebody, uh, a person with so much uh, uh, information to share. So one of the challenges I think that we've seen with our people is we don't have a lot of voices. So this is why we want to make sure that at least we uh, give you an opportunity to offload your wisdom, your intelligence with some of us so that at least we can learn. The purpose of this show is to educate, to inform, and then at some times, of course, we throw in some entertainment. So without further ado, Brother Warren, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, born and raised here in New Orleans. Uh, I've uh, done quite a bit of travel in my life. Uh, I had a chance to travel to at least five African countries. Uh, traveled uh, Western Europe. I stayed in uh, London back in the early 90s. Uh, traveled uh, in Western Europe, mostly traveling Europe, Western Europe. And, uh, and in fact, when I was in college, uh, I uh, 
studied uh, one semester abroad in Europe, and then and then later returned and stayed in uh, London. And I traveled in uh, the South Pacific, which is a virgin uh, area of uh, black people that we all should know about in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And so I just, at some point in my life, I began to really uh, see the richness in connecting with black people around the world and uh, recognize that we do have a strength uh, and the possibility of what we have to bring to the world has yet to be realized and fulfilled. Yeah, that's a great, great way to start. Because as black people, I think there's just so much that we have to offer to this world. So for the purposes of this evening, we wanted just for you to educate our listeners, myself included, my co-host Nancy, because we have read, we have seen uh, the celebration of Black History Month, but Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our people don't really have a firm understanding. So let's start. What is Black History Month and why is it celebrated in February? <clears throat> well, you know, uh, when the celebration uh, initially began, it began uh, in the year 1926, about 95 years ago. And, of course, America was a a segregated place. Uh, In the southern states, you had legal segregation laws. In the northern states, you had a variety of laws where blacks were discriminated against. And so in in the United States, uh, black people had to create their own educational institutions after slavery. You begin to have uh, black colleges, but also you begin to have a lot of schools in black communities uh, where black people live. You had schools. And the initial school was located in the church building. And it generally was a kindergarten to sixth grade. And you really didn't have high schools in most uh, places, certain cities had high schools. So, for example, uh, well, let's go back. Demographically, most black people resided in the southern part of the United States, and you had a percentage of blacks in the northern part. And in the southern part of the United States, most blacks were rural people. They lived in the rural areas. They lived on farms. Uh, they lived on what you call plantations as sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were blacks who did own their own farms after slavery. Many blacks began to buy land. And so your only educational opportunity was at the school, the church schoolhouse. And then if you want to go to high school, you may have had to go to the nearest big city in your state. Uh, or in some cases, uh, some of the black colleges had programs that would take you from sixth grade on up. So uh, the uh, African-American community had their own educational institutions. They had their own scholars. They had their own professional organizations, such as the Association for the Study of Negro Life in History. 
And that was an organization uh, started by Carter G. Woodson, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, mm-hmm. who was an educator. Uh, Dr. Woodson even served as a superintendent of schools in the Panama Canal Zone. Now, you know, the Panama Canal Zone in Panama was American territory. And wherever Americans were, they brought segregation. And so in the Panama Canal Zone, you had a lot of blacks from the Caribbean islands who came to work on the building of the canal. But Carter G. Woodson also served as an educator, administrator in the Philippines as well. So mm-hmm. the, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, uh, they came up with this idea to implement the contributions of, at that time, the term was Negro, Negro and colored. Those were the words used to apply to to black people, and they, occasionally you would see the word Afro-American. So they were concerned about the, the implementation of positive information about the Negro, the contributions. And so it started out as a week in February was because two important people to black people, their birth month was February. One was mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his birthday was, I think, the 12th of February. And Frederick Douglass, his birthday was, I think, it's the 20th of February. And so those two individuals had significant meaning to African Americans. Abraham Lincoln, because he was the president to oversee the end of slavery. And Frederick Douglass, who was one of the most vocal opponents of slavery. And so the week, it was called Negro History Week. And so you would have programs at your school. You would have programs at your church. You would dress up. You would say parts. You would, the kids would read information in parts. And one of the things that went along was the singing of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which mm-hmm. was composed by James Weldon Johnson. And that song, had been known even today as the Black National Anthem. You see, African Americans didn't have patriotism to America, so the 4th of July was not something black people regularly celebrated. We tend to have celebrated, particularly in the southern states, near Texas and Louisiana, June 19th, referred to as Juneteenth. That was the big picnic day for black people. And so Lift Every Voice and Sing became known as the song to the black people sang that reflected their experience in the United States in particular. Okay, so then when the 1960s and 70s come, uh, it, it it was advocated that this week celebration be extended to a month. And so by the early 1970s, you have Black History Month because now the term changes from Negro to Black. In other words, Black had been considered a derogatory term. So, and let's say when my parents were coming up, and if you call somebody Black, that was grounds to fight. If you mm-hmm. call someone African, you might get stabbed. So what black people did during the civil rights movement, the young generation, 
They then took the word black and politicized it. They made it positive. So when James Brown came with his song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, that was the engine, the combustible engine that sparked off the change from Negro to identifying as black. So Black History Month. So by the 1970s, we get the month. And uh, I think it was Jimmy Carter, 1976, who takes who recognizes the month of June as Black Music Month for Black people's contribution to music. So I, mm. I don't know if you recall in June there's talk about African American Music Month, and um, oh. yeah, yeah. So that's what June is. So now in the UK you have Black History Month in October. So the UK. The UK has a a Black History Month, but they observed there in October. So the whole purpose, because black people had been strategically removed from anything positive in school textbooks, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a way to counter that. You know, many people just don't understand how black people were just denigrated in every form in this country, in the lo- in the newspapers, in the uh, you know the regular media, in school textbooks, there are school textbooks that black children had to use that denigrated them when they went to school. They had to open up textbooks where it referred to them the N word, where it referred to them, and other no. type of things, saying slavery that slaves, black people were happy during slavery and their masters treated them real well. These are the type of things that were written in the textbooks. And believe it or not, there's attempts by some states like Texas to still write that kind of stuff in the textbooks. So Uh this was a way to combat the image of black people in the society that we have contributed that we have done worthy things and are still doing worthy things. And that, that's the whole point. And, you know, in 2021, we mm-hmm. find ourselves, it appears in many respects, with all of the media, with all of the saturation of black people on television and black people doing very good things, it appears that we still find ourselves struggling with that same endeavor. Wow, wow. That's just just so much to unpack, uh, Brother Warren. So we're going to try to zoom in a little bit because some of us, like I say, most of the audience, uh, they have... Uh, see, African history, from an African perspective, we are taught a different story. So when you come across to these parts, the United States, the history and the challenges that black people went through is not really taught. So can you speak a little bit about why do you think mm, the southern states, like you mentioned Texas, why do you, why did they, it took them long to uh, jump off the, the slave ship? for lack of a better term. Why do you think they sort of promote and they were writing those textbooks to sort of de- denigrate our our people? 
Well, all over the United States, black people were, dinner, were, were you know, we were defamed all over mm-hmm. the United States. The southern states tend to get most of the attention because of two things, the institution of slavery and the Jim Crow laws, which were laws in the southern states that segregated blacks and whites. Now, the northern states, many of them didn't have such laws from a statewide standpoint, but there were various other um, laws that that pretty much, the, the end result was the same thing. So the issue of racism against blacks is, is a, you know, basically a part of America's creation. You know, that black people are basically uh, not fully human or not human, and uh, therefore, whatever stereotype that one could ever think of was was uh, always how black people were looked there, and that's been the struggle. And, and those those typecast of black people are still with us today. I'm going to give you an example. One of the stereotypes of black women was the Jezebel, Jezebel from the Bible. You know, a loose woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. charms the man so much to the man becomes weak. Do you know Kamala Harris is referred to as Jezebel today? In fact, there were some white ministers. I just read an article just the other day. There were some well-known white ministers preach from the pulpit that yeah, so if that's, Kamala that's Harris part, becomes president, that Jezebel. That's part that's of no the stereotype of black women. Yes, especially with the southern states. I don't know why the southern states are very firm on that negativity front. But can you speak a little bit about the role of Marcus Garvey uh, and you can take it up to uh, Elijah Muhammad? Just what role did these uh, guys play in this uh, movement? Well, you know, Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican and uh, Marcus Garvey uh, was born about 1887, if I'm not mistaken. He was born in Jamaica, and he was by trade a printer. And Jamaica had a expatriate community all over the Caribbean. Jamaicans had went to other Caribbean islands, particularly Spanish-speaking islands, to work. Uh, they went to Cuba. They went to all along Central America, Jamaicans went. And so Garvey would travel because he had relatives who lived in, like in Costa Rica. And he would visit these black communities in these Central American countries. And Garvey would always get himself into some sort of political uh, effort and, and, and ask to leave. And so Garvey went to London. And uh, you know, at that time, people traveled on these steamships at that time. There was no airplane travel, anything like that. <clears throat> so Garvey spent time in London where he came into contact with many people. One was a Egyptian Sudanese named Duse Muhammad Ali, who published a magazine called the Orient Review. Duse Muhammad Ali was like a Pan-Africanist. Mm-hmm. And Garvey was influenced by him. But Garvey, on his return to Jamaica, had met some South Africans. 
And they began to tell him how badly the blacks were treated in South Africa. And so one day Garvey in his cabin laid down and thought to himself, he said, now everywhere, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, what I've read about Garvey. He, he said, oh, yeah. everywhere, everywhere the Negro is, the Negro is at the bottom. And he said, where is the black man's army? Where is the black man's big affairs? And he said to himself, where since there is none, I will create one. He gets back to Jamaica, and he starts an organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. And, And so in Jamaica... He started, and he was impressed by a well-known Negro in the United States named Booker T. Washington, who was the president of Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Booker T. Washington was the great educator whose education model of training black people in the trades, in addition to liberal arts education, but black people being trained in various trades. That was something Garvey wanted in Jamaica. So he mm-hmm. wrote Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington wrote to him back and invited him to Tuskegee. Booker T. Washington died in 1915. So Garvey, when he finally came to the United States in 1916, so he did not have a chance to meet Booker T. Washington. And when Garvey gets to the States, he does a little tour, and he, he, he relocates his organization to New York. And in New York, oh, and by the way, he has a newspaper called The Negro World. The newspaper is published in English, French, and Spanish. You see, that's his specialty. He's a printer. He understands propaganda at that time. And so anyway, yeah. he, he relocates to New York. He headquarters himself in New York. His movement grows until we learn from records that he had approximately 6 million members worldwide. He had a chapter in Australia, even among the Australian Aborigines. He had chapters in Africa, like in South Africa there were chapters. There were chapters in Nigeria. Now, all these were colonial possessions, and Garvey was not permitted to step foot in Africa. He never went to Africa. But he had the greatest impact. And many African political organizations were influenced by Garveyism. I read that people in villages, when the Negro World newspaper was smuggled into these African territories, colonial Mm -hmm. possessions, that people from the villages would run to town and listen to someone read the articles about what Garvey had to say. He was very much a concern to the colonial forces. So my point, Garvey had the largest mass movement, black movement in the world. He had approximately 6 million members. And he actually had the, uh, the membership cards. That's how he knew all the chapters and divisions he had worldwide. In the United States, Louisiana, where I live, had the largest chapters in Louisiana, and uh, New York 
was a, was another location. And in the Caribbean, Cuba was I had a lot of chapters in Cuba, and uh, in in Argentina in those places in Brazil. So Garveyism really, really was a massive movement that impacted people later, like Elisha Muhammad. All Elisha Muhammad did was take the religion of Islam and he refashioned Islam. He refashioned it as a black man's religion because he had been a Garveyite too. Elisha Muhammad had been a Garveyite. And so you had many offshoot groups as a regard of Garveyism, to address black people's condition. And um, Garveyism needs to be studied. One of the Garvey scholars is the late Tony Martin, a Trinidadian who was a professor at Wellesley College who wrote several books on Marcus Garvey. Yeah, so... I think uh, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. I don't know if Nancy, can you hear me? Is is the yes, yes, I can hear you. I can hear both of you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of a glitch there. So let's take a short break, and we'll we'll be back in a few seconds. Let's take a short break to as we give uh, our brother just a few seconds to. Uh, get a cup of tea or get get a drink and then we'll, we'll play just a, 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 a short song. This is the Zambia's uh, president for Zambia's first Republican president singing. Dr. Kenneth David Kaunda, Zambia's first uh, Republican president, singing Tiende Pamozi Nimtima Umo. So, Brother Warren, what that song simply means is uh, let us walk together with one heart. Let us do everything together. Uh, sort of just uh, bringing our people together so that at least we should do things in one sense. So, my co-host now has a has a question for you. Go ahead, Nancy. Um, 
Hello, uh, good evening. Good evening, uh, Brother Warren. Always good to hear from you and to learn so much from you. I know I had you last time on the Zambia blog talk radio show, and uh, you really taught us a lot. So um, as you gave us that very, very rich history about uh, the black African month or the Negro history month, and I know now as we continue to celebrate the African, um, the black African month, uh, it's the time that we pay tribute to the heroes of the United States history. And I'm also intrigued by the just the, def- the definite stories that represent black excellency and triumph since uh, 1826 or 1877. So I'm moving forward to, to the Black History Month theme in 2020. And uh, I know that um, this was the, for the um, African-Americans and the vote. So knowing that in the past, African-Americans were not allowed to vote or they were not recognized as the American citizens. What did the black, um, what role did the black African vote represent in the 2020 elections, considering what came to light with the sitting president then and his followers? Okay. Uh now, could you rephrase that in a, in a short way? I'm, I'm trying to understand the the, the question. So now, what I was, cause, uh, I know that you gave us a lot of history for the, um, mm-hmm. the Negro History Month. So I'm moving forward yeah. to uh, 2020. I know we we just had uh, the presidential um, general election, right. and I know right. that uh, recognizing that uh, the long and ongoing struggle of the Black African Americans exercise their rights as citizens to vote uh-huh. or maybe. They were mm-hmm. not recognized as citizens then. So uh, what role did you think the black, the black vote played in the 2020 elections, considering what um, came to light with the sitting then president and his followers? Okay. Well, you know, the, the, uh, the black vote uh, was very strategic. It has always been strategic for, for a very long time. That's why there, there have been efforts to, restrict uh, as many blacks as could be through various rules from voting or registering to vote or being eligible to vote. So this election, like many of the previous elections, uh, the black vote is very critical. It's very well understood. And that's why the Republican Party, uh, and I want to briefly just run down these party situations here. When black people, when black males because, you know, at one time, women were not allowed to vote. So after the Civil War, uh, the period after the Civil War was called Reconstruction. That was the attempt to bring the southern states back into the Union. Remember, the southern states had rebelled. They declared <laughs> themselves a different country, the Confederacy. And so now after the Civil War, the 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 struggle for the U.S. government was how to bring the southern states back in. So southern states had to rewrite their constitutions, and uh, they had to uh, express oath to the United States. So what happened was a lot of white males who were Confederates were not allowed to vote. Now, black males in the South were given a right to vote for the first time. This is about 1868. And so all of a sudden overnight in many of these southern counties and cities, black people became the majority of the voters. And, of course, black people voted at that time Republican 
because that was the party of Abraham Lincoln. Okay, so during this period, you have a lot of blacks who actually become elected officers. You have two black senators. You have a few black uh, uh, congressional representatives. And in local areas, you started to have black sheriffs. You had blacks, everything. This is about 1868 to about 1877. Reconstruction ended because the country got tired of trying to placate the blacks, and they wanted to make uh, friendship with the other whites, the, the U.S. government. And so blacks got ignored. Whites reorganized in terror campaigns, and that's when you get the Ku Klux Klan and other terror groups, and they begin to drive black people away from the voting polls. And it wasn't until approximately 1965 that laws were put in place to guarantee blacks the right to register to vote. And then again, you started seeing blacks vote in large numbers. So the black vote has been very strategic for quite some time. And why did blacks leave the Republican Party and become Democrat? Easy. Because at the time the civil rights movement was taking place, you had a Democratic president named John F. Kennedy and his successor, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who gave civil rights attention and priority. So the Civil Rights Act of 1960, the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 was signed by a Democratic president, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed by a Democratic president. So you see blacks become Democrat voters, and the white Democrats of the South, who became angry by the 1970s and 80s, they flocked to the Republican Party. So the Republican Party today houses that old mentality of the South. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, so the, the challenge yeah. has always been on the South. Yeah, so you see the South, I don't know. Yeah, why. so they, I, they, actually, they, my, next, uh, actually yeah. Uh, my next question was going to be like, uh, why did the black people leave the Republican Party? But now you have already uh, um, addressed that. <laughs> And it's like this. It's like black people have always been very appreciative to any group of whites who show some sort of humanity and respectability. So the civil rights movement, it was the Democratic presidents like Kennedy and Johnson. Now, the, there's a political term that was crafted after the civil rights movement is called the Southern strategy. What the Southern strategy means is how do you woo those angry white Southern voters? In other words, how do you appeal to them and their prejudice? So the Republican party since Nixon has used the Southern strategy. And so president, the, the former president Trump, brilliantly utilized the Southern strategy. Because a lot of things became hit in cold language. You, you, uh, Ronald Reagan was the person to skillfully brand, rebrand the Southern strategy. So you don't say blacks anymore. You don't call their names out anymore. You say stuff like welfare. You say stuff like big government. We don't want big government. We don't want welfare programs. We, you, you say coded things, coded language. 
and no. people understand what that means, and then they respond to that. Oh, so let, let me just take you on there uh, on that point, Brother Warren. Yeah, so I, I'm actually taking notes, learning so much from this is the reason why we wanted you to be on this show is because of the vastness of knowledge and information that you have to share. So can you just speak a little bit on the coded language uh, that is used? And also, can you just explain for our listeners why Trump ran the campaign, uh, Make America Great Again? What did he mean by that? Well, well, what, what Trump was brilliant in his communication was that he appealed to what people called the angry white voter who has been forgotten about, and these would be the working class whites who live all across America, not just the South, who lived in very industrious towns and cities, such as we call the Rust Belt. Pennsylvania, places like Ohio, Michigan, where you have factories and plants. And you didn't have to have a college degree to get a very decent job to buy a home and retire with a good pension. The corporate class outsourced these jobs overseas to pay low wages. The corporate class doesn't want to pay like affordable wages and fringe benefits to the American workers. Because you see, the real capitalist, people got to understand what a capitalist is. A capitalist is not a person who opens a store in the business. That's not a capitalist. A capitalist are these big guys at the top who control the means of production. And they do not want, they, they live for profit. So anything that can get more money in their pocket and less cost, that's where their mind is. So sending everything to China or to Southeast Asia would happen over time. So now these white people have noticed that their towns and cities have become bankrupt, decrepit. They start going to drugs, opioids. Now Trump, who's not from the working class background, he's a wealthy white person, he, he took advantage of that language. And and he woke these people up. He gave them the and then and then you have you you have black people who have been progressing, black people who are in high positions, you have immigrants coming from everywhere around the world, and they're looking at all of this. And they're saying to themselves, I thought this was a white man's country. This is supposed to be for us. And look at this Barack Obama and his wife in the White House. They're not supposed to be there. How do they get there? Look at these Spanish-speaking people all over America. Who's letting them in? You see, this is the thinking. And so Trump spoke to that. And so he gave them a vision that I'm going to put all of this in control. And so make America great again is that coded language, make America white again. And these people fell for it. Yeah, you see, these people believed it, and so they're so stupid. Some of them went up to the Capitol and, and tried to, you know, do what they did because that's just how shallow they are. The, 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 the concept of being white means I am going to have some sort of status over Brother Warren. 
I may be poor, I may be working hard, but even if Brother Warren has an education, my whiteness will get me more advantage in society than he does. So, for example, if Brother Warren gets caught drinking while driving, he might get arrested. But if mm-hmm. I get if I'm caught drinking while driving 50 times, I may not get arrested until I kill somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, whiteness, whiteness, has meant, whiteness has meant this. At least you have a place over the Native Americans and the blacks. Now, what has, how it has been effective? The corporate white class has not had to worry about the poor working class whites becoming angry with them. Because their eyes are on the black people, the Native Americans, and the Mexicans. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a, this is a very huge, huge topic, huge topic, and Mm -hmm. we're just learning so much. So Nancy, go ahead with your next question. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Mr. Warren. So much history there, you know. I think uh, if you were to write a book, I would really, really jump on that. You have so much history. Um, Having come from Zambia, you know, I'm an immigrant, a Zambian-American, mm. and uh, having read about the history of America and how the struggles of the black mm. people in this country, and having have to move to this country to actually be able to be among us together and live it and feel the prejudice, it's really, really something different. I, I even had that conversation with, our, with one of my friends who called me yesterday. She's also in the medical field, and she was just telling me how um, racial issues are still, you know, prevailing even in the medical field. So um, for me, really, um, Black History Month means pride, joy, celebration, gratitude, and recognizing that the um, recognizing the African American people that you just mentioned in the history for for what they, you know, fought for and opened up the way for each one of us, and to have that hope for us immigrants to come in the country. And um, as you indicated about Trump running on the language of um, make America great and making those white people more angry against the immigrants <laughs> and anyone mm-hmm. who succeeded, you know, people of color who are living well now because they're hardworking compared to them. It's really, really um, yeah. intriguing yeah. and scary, you know, yeah. when he was yeah. Um, yeah. ruling, yeah. you know. And, uh, and just yeah. watching whatever happened uh, during the Capitol Hill, it was really, really scary. And uh, I would see really yeah. like black people's lives would be sacrificed for that. So uh, going yeah. back to the uh, theme for the um, Black History Month for 2021, it says the black family. I don't know whether you guys mm-hmm. follow this. Every year they come up with a, um, a different theme for the um, black family. Uh, so um, how would you describe the black family? for to be celebrated as a Black History Month for 2021. Let me say this as time goes. I want you and other continental Africans to know this. Every step of the way, the black people in the United States always identified with the African continent. It was always a part of our identity. It was always a part of a certain positiveness by referring to African kingdoms and African kings and African people. That is very well documented in black peoples organizing in this country from the very first Africans who came to North America enslaved. 
When we began to create institutions such as the churches and the organizations to advocate the end slavery, we had the word African. And I'm going to make this statement. I want this to be very, very clear. From my documentation and my study of history, it is the black people in the North America that use the word African as a description for all black people. I don't think people in Africa were even using the term Africa. In North America, you had the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It was a creation from the white Methodist church. The black people left the white churches because the whites treated them like children. And so in the late 1700s in Philadelphia, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen started the African Methodist Episcopal Church. There was a Masonic Lodge today, a traditional black Masonic Lodge we call the Prince Hall Masons. Prince Hall came from the Caribbean in the 1700s. He goes to Philadelphia, I think, and he starts the African Lodge. White people had belonged to Masonic organizations, so the black people started the African Lodge. There was a series of private schools in New York called the African Free Schools. So black people in North America used the term African. Family, as we kick down. <clears throat> One of the two things that black people in the Americas fought for, they fought for freedom from slavery, and they fought to maintain family connections because during slavery, Family members were sold away from each other. You should see the ads after slavery, the ads put out in newspapers of black people looking for family members that were sold away. In fact, the first-hand account says that when slavery ended, the roads were packed and filled with black people walking all over looking for their family members that were sold. There's always been an attack on any type of black togetherness, anything that's stable for black people, for them to galvanize themselves and resist the efforts to dehumanize them has always come under attack. And so family, yes, family is very important. And we have to look at the economic structure that produces a lot of fraction and the legal system. That's another whole long story. But family is always a part of what we do here. But Africa has always been there in our hearts and minds. That's very well documented. Yeah, thank you, Brother Warren. That was just powerful, powerful. I think what we're going to do in the future is to have a series where we sort of break down, because I think you have unpacked a lot, and we haven't had time to sort of zoom in uh, but at least that was also by design just to start the show on a very high note. So in one or two minutes, can you just uh, break down your Zambia connection uh, as we are running down on the show just in one or two minutes? Oh, okay. sh- share with our listeners that you are half Zambian. <laughs> what was very, was very uh, popular now is many African-Americans are taking DNA tests with the major DNA companies, Ancestry DNA, 23andMe. And what the DNA reveals, once 
portion of your DNA, it shows you who you match. In other words, any other person that takes the DNA test, if you all share a common DNA, it's going to show matches. And so African-Americans or any black person is showing matches with people in Africa who take the DNA test. So one of my matches is a lady from Zambia. She lives in the north. Her name is Phyllis. And we communicate. I talk to her and her daughter, and they're asking me when I'm going to come over to visit. Very <laughs> nice people. And Phyllis, Phyllis has a sister lives in Chicago. Yeah, Phyllis says she has a sister lives in Chicago. Chicago. But I think the city of Ndolo is where they live up in the, near, up in the north of Zambia, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, so that was Brother Warren. Uh, there's just so much information. So I think what we're going to do in future is to have a part two or just maybe a, a series because I think there's just so much that our people can learn from Brother Warren. So we greatly, greatly appreciate uh, Brother Warren being on this show, sharing his words of wisdom. And uh, Nancy, what do you think uh, uh, about what you have learned so far? Wow, um, that has been so much information. My head is exploding. So that's why I'm encouraging <laughs> Brother Warren here. I know he's Zambian by DNA. He's our brother. He needs to write a book and just, uh, you know, stabilize it very well to our own understanding because I think he's, uh, his head is full of knowledge and um, he's a good historian. Yeah, so we'll try to bring Brother Warren as much as possible so that at least we can learn from him as much as we can. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is our very first show. There are countless more to come. So we are actually working on a platform where we'll have the visual component so at least you can actually see us. So uh, any one one minute or less, Nancy, what 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 does Black uh, History Month mean to you? Well, uh, thank you so much, Mr. President Noah, our moderator, and thank you so much for having invited me to the show to be your co-host. For me, uh, working in the front lines uh, during the pandemic, um, Black History Month means a lot because, uh, as I can see, uh, it shows that uh, we have about 10% of nurses in the United States who are black or from you know, African-Americans or colored as we may call them. So I'm very, very thankful for the opportunities that were given to us from um, our pioneers of nursing. So Black History Month actually makes it uh, easy for us to um, also to remember and recognize those who have made significant contributions to the fields of nursing and medicine. It can be easy to forget just how far these disciplines have come and the people who work tirelessly to advance our knowledge and help of lives. I know there are so many, but today I'll just mention, uh, uh, let me see here, um, Harriet Tubman. You know, she played a very big role. She was a nurse, and she helped uh, over 300 slaves travel the Underground Railroad to freedom. And she played a very big role in the Civil War, where she actually had intensive knowledge of natural herbal remedies. She treated mm -hmm. many soldiers who were suffering from uh, dysentery and smallpox and remarkably managed to stay healthy. When yes, the war ended, yes, she yes. continued to care for others and eventually helped to start a home for the elderly. Another oh, okay, person no. that I'm going to recognize today is uh, Mary Eliza Mahoney. Uh, so uh, she was the first black registered nurse. 
1879, she graduated from a program in New England. And mm -hmm. uh, in 1908, she helped yeah. to establish the National yeah. Association of I, College I, Graduate Nurses. Yeah. You know, so, so I think, yeah. there are many more awards. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it just shows there's just so much that we have to share as uh, we celebrate Black History Month. So I want to, again, take the time to thank Brother Warren for just sharing his words of wisdom. And, of course, the, we're going to have more segments where we just uh, provide a lot of educational information because what you heard was just very good. So as we are ending the show, we're going to end on a Zambian classic freedom song. This I think most Zambians know this song. So thank you, Brother Warren, who be in touch. And thank you, Nancy. Till next week at the same time. Next week we'll be talking about love. So this is also a month of love. So bring all your love questions, challenges next week as we discuss what is love from an African perspective and a Zambian perspective. In the meantime, enjoy this great song. Thank you and good night. Thank you.